Well, good morning. Ah, technology. I understand that uh, I've been muted, so uh, we're going we're gonna to take a look again. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Colossians 3, verses 15 and 16. Get your, your physical Bible or your Bible app and, and follow along with us. In the 1970s, Joni Mitchell wrote and performed a song that included these lyrics, You don't know what you got till it's gone. Now, her next line was a concern that uh, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Our concern is the first line. Sometimes we don't know what we have until we don't have it. Have you had that thought maybe a few dozen times a day during this season? Uh, can't go to a restaurant with friends, no sports, no school. Maybe more sobering, you can't go to work or you actually have lost your job. Maybe you can't go see a loved one in a nursing home or, or hospital, someone who needs you. And yet, we can't. Many things that we've considered normal are now shockingly taken away for now. Maybe we'll appreciate even more what we've got because for this season, they were gone like worshiping together. I don't know if for you, uh, worshiping together uh, has been something that's a priority every weekend, or if it's something that maybe has just been uh, somewhat optional for you. Now we're in this season when it's not even a possibility. So we're creating with uh, technology something that we cannot do personally. So it's ironic that as we come to this passage in Colossians, Uh, When we cannot meet together, Paul talking to the church about what they need to do when they meet together. So while we can't meet together, he is expressing the importance of meeting together. And maybe that's exactly what God wants us to think through this morning of how important it is for the body to meet together. Two key phrases. Listen for the phrases, let the peace of Christ rule and let the word of Christ uh, dwell. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Talking about our relationships with each other. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. In these two parallel lines, you will actually see kind of a contrast because the first one is about our relationships. Let the peace of Christ dwell among us, rule over over us. But then it speaks of how we must relate to God, hearing from his word and singing praises to him. So it's going two directions. Let the peace of Christ rule. We've... uh, summarize the theme of the book of Colossians as submitting to the supremacy of Christ. There's a little banner on our wall. Submitting to the supremacy of Christ, the book of Colossians has been all about the person of Christ. He is truly God. He is our creator. He should have complete supremacy and authority in every part of our life. Never is that more true than in our relationships. Let the peace of Christ Rule. The word rule in the, uh, the Greek language of the New Testament is really taken from the sports world. It's like the word uh, referee or, 
or umpire. Someone has to oversee the, the, the wrestling in the old uh, Isthumian games of Corinth, for example. It's going to be a free-for-all if you don't have the referee. So the peace of Christ is supposed to rule our relationships. Now, we don't see Christ, so how does Christ's peace rule our relationships with each other? We've learned in chapter 1, verse 27, that Christ is in us. So if Christ is in us, that is what creates the body of Christ, as this verse says. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. So we are all part of one another. And the fact is that the, the time when this is really tested is when we are in a church fellowship and we relate to each other constantly. And because we're all sinners, we are going to rub each other wrong. It's unavoidable. I would even suggest it's important that we rub each other wrong because that is where we test and exercise what we studied last week. Verses 12 and 13, we studied last week the grace principles of our personal relationships. Clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Where are you going to put that to practice? Unless you are in actual relationships with one another. That's what the church is about. Paul uses this term, rule or referee, not like we usually think in sports, and that is to determine who wins. Who is supposed to win? What is the win in our relationships? The win is when the peace of Christ is ruling our relationships. So we think of, of, of needing to win an argument or, or win that our viewpoint or, or our method wins out. But no, the peace of Christ is supposed to rule. Politicians don't know how to do that. Many, many families don't know how to do that, but that's what God is teaching us. But it's in the church family that we must begin to let the peace of Christ rule. It's almost fascinating to watch our federal government, if it sometimes weren't so sad, who has been fighting each other so much for so long that now they are in some ways forced to try to come together against a common foe. Uh, this virus or the economy, however you want to see it, I wish the peace of Christ could rule there, but it must rule here. We lead the way. If you've had the misfortune of being a part of a church that was going through a serious conflict. Unfortunately, it's not a lot of a difference between that and the U.S. political scene because it's about my way, your way, I'm right, you're wrong. And what Paul is saying is, stop it. Whatever you disagree about, the win is not what you think it is. The win is when the peace of Christ dominates our relationships. Let the peace of Christ rule What's the next phrase say? In your hearts. You see, the real battle is not with that other person or viewpoint. The real battle is between our hearts and the peace of Christ. That has to be settled first, the internal battle. Let it rule in your hearts. That's what changes all of these relationships. Because as members of one body, he says, you were called to peace. This was the point. He says, how can you accomplish what you're supposed to be doing Unless you have peace. 
the picture of Christ's body being the church is, is, is so practical because if I think of a simple process, if I were to bend down and tie my shoe, my entire body needs to be coordinated. Problem for me sometimes, but my eyes, my hands, my torso, my knees, my, both feet have to cooperate in order for me to simply tie my shoe. And all of that must be coordinated in my head. Now, in this picture, of course, Christ is the head of the body. And that's why he needs the peace that he can, alone can bring to dominate, rule, how we function so that we can accomplish the purposes to which we were called. At Open Door Bible Church, we often summarize our purpose with these little letters, RBI. Our purpose is to reach people with the gospel, R, reach Tell them about Christ, salvation available only through faith in Christ. Reach people with the gospel. B is building them up in their faith, what we want to do here this morning. I is to get each person involved then in the body of Christ, reaching and building others. So how are we going to ever accomplish that unless the peace of Christ is ruling in our lives? Now, some clarification is important because... We might have the question, is Paul saying peace at any price? I don't think so. Because Paul is not saying, and sometimes religions get into this problem of trying to make peace at any price like everybody's okay. No, Paul is not saying you can compromise truth for the sake of a so-called peace. As a church family, we often use three terms to describe different kinds of of differences. So for some of you, this will be uh, familiar. The three kinds of differences are absolutes, convictions, and preferences. The first of those is in a unique category, really. Absolutes are what has always been true, what is truly right or wrong, timeless truths taught in the Bible. We are not to sacrifice those issues. We cannot compromise doctrinal truth. Who is Christ? What is the gospel? How are we saved? Moral truth cannot be compromised. God has one moral standard. But most conflicts really between Christians are about these next two categories, convictions and preferences. So what are convictions? Convictions are what I believe God wants me to do. These are personal choices that I must make based on biblical principles. And everybody has to make personal choices because of issues that come up. I mean, if, if you're at home and you decide, should I watch this movie? Is this movie appropriate for me or my family or not? You'll do that based on a conviction from God's word about holiness or purity or whatever the issue might be. And so you say, I need to make a personal application. It may be different in another family in the same church. We can't make rules about that. Then there's this category we can call preferences. Preferences are what I like or agree with. It might be about style. It might be about uh, the method, a way of doing things, like in a church. It might be uh, something about public policy, what I think is best for society. That's where we get into uh, a lot of our political opinions. 
can be personal things. Uh, your spending priorities might be different than another Christian. Your 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 view of how, what a church should do, or or your view of uh, how you skill, school your children, will be different from another Christian family. Though homeschooling sure seems to be popular these days. Don't let lesser issues become the major issues. Don't let them become dividing walls between you and other believers. Especially in these days, we find a lot of uh, Christians disagreeing, even upon what's happening about what's happening in, in America. If you are a Christian in government, you will need to make decisions based on convictions, and probably convictions about absolutes. But for most of us, frankly, we're kind of just dealing with what we're dealt. And so it comes down to opinions of what we think is best or right. Don't let lesser issues distract us from the important issue we have of representing Christ to our world, especially in this time. So, where does the peace of Christ rule? The peace of Christ needs to rule our relationships when it comes to convictions and preferences. Truth must rule the absolute areas of absolute. And so we need to make some distinctions, not peace at any price, but frankly, most of the things that we struggle with with one another are in these areas of convictions and preferences. One reason we need to spend time with each other is so that we experience Christians with different opinions. Where else will we test our grace attitudes from verses 12, 13, and 14? I think there's probably been a lot of Christians through the years that have ceased fellowship in a local church because of conflict over convictions and preferences and attacking one another. I feel real badly about that as I meet different believers who have gone through something like that. But you need a church fellowship. Don't be afraid of what God designed. You need a church fellowship where where the Bible is upheld as authority, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is exalted as the core doctrine, and where there is a principle of grace in relating to one another about those kinds of differences. And the final line of verse 15 then becomes a simple follow-up when he says, and be thankful. Now that applies to everything. He will apply it several ways in verses 15, 16, and 17. But here specifically, I think he's saying, and be thankful for those other people in the body of Christ. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful for those people around you. Different and difficult as sometimes they may seem to be. Be grateful that you're learning to look beyond your, beyond your own proud opinions or your petty preferences. And right now we miss that, that interaction, that opportunity. We have isolation. We have interruption to our fellowship. And yet maybe it'll be a catalyst to far closer relationships in years ahead. Let the peace of Christ rule. And oh, by the way, be sure to try this at home. The next couple passages, if you look ahead, are about uh, marriages and, and parenting. That's, that's really where we practice the peace of Christ. My wife Priscilla and I disagree on many, many areas of preference. It's actually, I think, laughable how different 
uh, we are and what we enjoy and prefer. We've sometimes said if we'd have had compatibility tests decades ago before we got married, maybe we'd have never gotten married. And we'd have really missed out on something. The peace of Christ. Because we agree about Jesus Christ. We, we agree about, about our love for Christ and our service for Christ. And so in actuality, we have great gratitude for one another in spite of the different things that we might enjoy. As we experience Christ transforming our relationships, it will be in the context of actually meeting each other. We can say we are gracious to one another. When we meet is when we actually practice that. So there is this horizontal impact. Let the peace of Christ rule. What's the next phrase, verse 15? Or rather, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell. Let the peace of Christ rule these relationships. But now it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And there's going to be two ways. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So now, instead of focusing on the peace we need with one another, this is about communicating with Christ. It's as we meet, we corporately communicate with Christ, and we do that through the Word of God, called here the Word of Christ, and through our worship, even as we have sung together already. The Word of Christ, this is a interesting phrase. Only place in the New Testament where the phrase, Word of Christ, is used. Because usually it says, Word of God. Interestingly, Paul uses both. Here in Colossians, he has chosen to use the phrase word of Christ because his emphasis has been on the supremacy of Christ. And since Christ is indeed God, then it's entirely appropriate for him to say, this is the word of Christ or this is Christ talking to you. When you, when you read the scripture, Christ is talking to you. It was popular a while back to ask, what would Jesus do? Well, the answer is simply, Whatever scripture says, Christ is teaching us as we read his word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word dwell is a word from, it's like, it's a, like housing, it's where you live. It's a living word. So what's the difference between a guest that comes for dinner or for the weekend to stay with you and living with your spouse? Everything, we would say. The guests leave, and they make little impact on how we think. But our spouse will continually impact the way we think. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, so that all the time, God's word, the Bible, is impacting you. In fact, it could probably be translated, let the word of Christ dwell among you, because it's not just about a one-on-one Christ speaking to us through his word personally, but it's about Christ speaking to us all. Among you, let the word of Christ dwell among you. For many Christians, I'm afraid that the word of Christ is more like a, like a guest. We encounter what God's word says once in a while, uh, go to church, you hear a sermon, or you happen to see a verse, and you go, oh, that's nice. Maybe you agree with it, or you might go, eh, I don't think I agree with that. And we go on our way, like, 
like you do with a guest. A guest gives an opinion that you don't agree with, but it's just for one night. You're not going to get into it. You know, so you just kind of ignore it. Francis Chan said uh, something like this. He says, when I find something in the Bible I don't agree with, I'm wrong. So let the word of Christ dwell in you so that you can realize where you're thinking about truth or your attitude or whatever it may be is wrong. So in this season is the word of Christ dwelling in you. Or is Fox News or CNN or the articles quoted on Facebook or shared by your friends or what, what is dwelling in you so that it is impacting you all the time? Because this is be a prime time to make sure that we have learned to let the word of God permeate our thinking, to think, to think things like, what is God doing? Most importantly, what is God teaching or doing in me? That's when we begin to understand if the word of Christ is dwelling in us. The next word is what? Richly. The idea is that, that, that the word of God becomes that which you prize or value. The Old Testament book of Psalms. Psalm 119 is the longest of all the Psalms. And it's a book, as some of you know, uh, or rather a, a, a psalm that contains synonyms for the Word of God in every verse except for three of the 176 verses. Every verse is about the Word of God. And I just was glancing through them this week, and I found terms like longing for God's Word, loving God's Word, delighting in God's Word. Those are repeated often. Then I found phrases like how the word of God is more precious than silver or it's like pure gold or it tastes like honey or it's joy to my heart or it's light to my path or it's like finding treasure or it's the theme of my song or they are wonderful words. And you begin to realize that the psalmist was a man who had understood the value of God's word permeating everything of his thinking. It's an acquired taste. The Word of God is an acquired taste. The more you, you, you invest in it, the more you will value what God says. A couple of practical suggestions. Uh, I'm glad that Pastor Seth has launched the Just Read online ministry this past week. Uh, he had intended to start it as an event held here at our facilities. but uh, So this past Wednesday... Uh, one o'clock on our Facebook feed. You can look it up. Pastor Seth began reading. He said, continue that, that ministry. Read along with him. There's power in just reading the scripture together. Another idea. Since we're kind of being forced into more and more technology, make sure you have a Bible app on your phone. Uh, a real good one is YouVersion. Uh, it contains a lot of different translations if you want to do some comparison. Um, one of the things I like about most Bible apps is a lot of the translations are available then by audio. And you can simply listen to it at those other times. Maybe you're driving to work or, or another time when you're seeking to fill your, fill your day these days. A third suggestion, don't neglect your physical Bible. Make sure you have a, a Bible translation that, that you can read well and that expresses things well. Get acquainted with your own Bible so you can find uh, the books that way and maybe you'll underline things and make some notes. That's okay. But get acquainted with your Bible. 
And you say, well, what if I don't understand something? (laughs) Welcome to the process. It's a lifelong endeavor to learn to know the scripture, but don't be afraid to look up some good, reliable online resources even, or other books. But um, uh, Bible.org is a great resource with some good, solid help. One of the largest, uh, I think it actually is the largest Bible um, uh, online resource, Bible.org. But in addition to our Bibles and our things we do that way, what does this passage say is the priority? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. So teaching is what we're doing right now, and that works okay online. It's a one-way conversation. But when it says teach and admonish one another, very clearly he is describing a two-way discussion and relationship of what the Bible teaches. You need more than a pastor's one-way sermon. That's why we need smaller groups. That's why we have at Open Door, we have our adult Bible fellowships and try to get everybody to involved, get involved in a group that is smaller, like a, like, a, like a really small church where we see each other and pray for each other and our youth ministries and kids' ministries. I hope that you and your children can participate where in, in a place where we are looking at God's word with one another. Because one person doesn't have all the insights and we'll hear somebody else's application, it'll impact our life. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We're all very interested in what's going on. So we are uh, invested in different news sources and blogs and and, uh, Facebook and so forth and You've probably experienced how it can take our emotions and our, our thoughts and our views all over the place. All the more reason that we need now for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, that we can be focused on his goodness, we can be focused on his holiness, we can be focused on his purposes, focused on his plan for the church and relating to one another, focused on his care for us, focused on how God might be at work in us, focused on our salvation, focused on the need of, our, of the people around us and our family and our community that do not have the assurance of eternal life. What a time for us to focus on what God says. Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Everything else is an opinion. God's word is wisdom. And I've delighted during this time to, to see different people comment, whether it's in some of our, our uh, Facebook groups or, or smaller groups, of what God is teaching. Because Now, that is encouragement. Opinion sharing doesn't use... You don't walk away necessarily encouraged, do you? But as we look into God's word and, and someone shares how God is encouraging them, that is what we need. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, your relationship with Christ is a two-way street. So the word of Christ must dwell in you richly. How do you respond to that? What does it say? And as you, this is vertical, as you sing songs with gratitude, I'm sorry, songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. See, you need to complete the loop. You need to, you need to express to God your gratitude personally. For that which he's teaching you. That which is happening in your life. It's interesting to study this when we cannot sing together. We sing separately, hopefully. 
This week I saw a collage of pictures on uh, Tim Challey's blog where he had asked for pictures of people. uh, Take a picture of your family as you worship because last week was like the week that it was in full gear around the globe that people were worshiping together. So just here's a couple of snapshots of, that he received of, of how around the world people were worshiping. Alone, as a family, with, with just very few others. But we worshiped. Uh, did you sing? <laughs> By the way, uh, I would welcome you if, uh, if maybe as you're worshiping together this morning and, and you feel comfortable doing this, uh, take a picture of, of, of your family worshiping and uh, send them to, uh, go to our website, uh, just channel them, email them to seth at odbcport.org. Seth, S-E-T-H, at odbcport.org. It'd be fun to put together kind of a collage, pick some of those out to, to put a collage together of our own church family worshiping. So, did you sing out loud as we worship? We have one more song a little later. Will you, um, as Pastor Seth has said, embrace the awkward? It's you and your family. But I'll tell you this. If you can worship with your family by singing out loud, when we get together next time as a church family, I bet you'll find the freedom to sing maybe if you never even have. You can pray silently But you really can't worship in song silently. One exception. One of our nephews is deaf and has been a ministry leader of deaf ministries for many years as a pastor of a deaf church and as a Bible translator and producer of video Bible translations. Anyhow, one time years ago, we were worshiping with them as their family at a deaf church. The worship time was incredible as they would sign the words, clap, and then beat the rhythm on a table in front of them so that they could at least feel the song, the music. You don't know what you got till it's gone. So sing, sing out loud. No matter how awkward, no matter how afraid you think your voice sounds, no matter if you're cynical about whether you like the song or the style, or even if you are undecided about how important it is, please take this seriously. According to this verse, it's not optional whether we sing. It's not okay not to sing. It's okay not to sing well. It's okay to sing on songs we don't particularly like. It's okay to feel awkward when we sing. It's just not okay not to sing. Why? Because it says so and because it's what Jesus would do. Did you know what Jesus sang with his disciples? Matthew 26. This is just before he went to the cross. Just finishing up that important evening where he washed the disciples' feet. They, they took part of the, of the uh, uh, Lord's Supper as he instituted that. So this is just picking it up at the end. This is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is a very important time, isn't it? What do they do? 
when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Was this just a, you know, a fun night? <laughs> hardly, hardly. What happened right after the song? Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall account, away on account of me. And, and Peter goes on to deny the Lord in the Matthew account at this point. That night, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. So this is the time when Jesus is agonizing in prayer, but submitting to the Father's will. This is when he is arrested. This is when he is unjustly tried. This is when he is crucified for our sins. But first he sang a hymn. Some Bible scholars believe that the hymn they sang was Psalm 118. It was a traditional Jewish uh, practice at Passover to sing Psalm 118. Read it sometimes. Sometime, uh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So Jesus himself, knowing that the cross was before him, that betrayal was before him, sang the Father's praises. Sometimes we think, well, I just don't feel like singing. Exactly. That's when we need to sing praises. And if you're Struggling to be grateful, that might be exactly what God has for us. You see, singing's a heart language. It says singing with gratitude in your hearts to God. It's a heart language. The songs you like, whether secular or sacred favorites, usually reveal something about your emotional state. You feel like listening to something because it somehow reflects or addresses your current state. And it fits you. Music expresses our heart. And I, I think that's what, that's what he had in mind. He says, make sure that the praises of God in music express your heart. And if you're struggling, may it alter your heart. May it transform your heart. Psalms. There are many musical versions of some of the psalms uh, from our Old Testament yet today. Hymns. Colossians 1 uh, verses 15 to 20, uh, we mentioned some months ago, are very likely a, a hymn of the early church where it's describing how Jesus is the image of the invisible God and by him all things were created. Just the, uh, there's like a rhythmic style in the, in the, in the text that suggests more of a, a hymn or a poetry style. The same is true of a letter in a letter that Paul wrote at the same time from prison, the book of Philippians where there was a hymn about Jesus Christ. And uh, most Bible versions or or editions that you see a print version actually puts it, as you see it here, in more of a poetic style like it might do uh, one of the Psalms. And so it's, I won't read the whole thing, but it's going through the person of Christ. His deity, his incarnation, made himself nothing. Then that he became obedient to death, that's the cross. Then that God exalted him. So it's just kind of reviewing the person and nature of Christ. So they sang psalms. They sang, Paul said to the Colossians to sing psalms and hymns and then spiritual songs. We're not totally sure what that all means, but spiritual songs seem to be more like what the Spirit was, was, was prompting them to, to sing about or to write about, maybe more of the personal expressions of worship coming out of their own, their own life. I think that would be similar to many of the worship songs that uh, we, we sing today. 
uh, obviously, there is variety in style, so maybe our preferences aren't the issue, but what is? Who do we sing to, and how do we sing, singing with gratitude in your hearts to God? It's a hard time to be thankful. And yet maybe it's a refining time for the whole concept of thanksgiving. As an American and in American churches, I think sometimes we come to thanksgiving, we are so blessed, our table is so full, and our garages and closets are so full that we can be a bit superficial about thanking God for what we have. And right now some of those things seem threatened and Pull back on your purchasing, but maybe then we'll be more grateful for the physical essentials that we do have. If you have food on the table, to be grateful and to tell the Lord your gratitude and thankful for the more personal things like family and trusting that as we're with one another and a select few all the more right now that you kind of go through this curve where you have to get used to being so close together, but then really being grateful for the renewed focus on family. But then finally, and most importantly, to be grateful for the spiritual blessings that sometimes had seemed so distant or vague or optional. But now to realize that we have God who is our refuge and our strength and our present help in trouble. I have an almighty God who is in control. And so to sing with gratitude in our hearts to God. You know, indeed, it's a hard time. Uh, We've all through the years heard of places in the world where to follow Christ, you will be persecuted. And so we know of pastors who have been put in prison for for just doing what I'm doing here today. We know of Christians who, if they gather together, it's illegal and they have to either either hide or, or not do it or find all... You know, this isn't persecution. But maybe God's allowed us here in this free country with all of our privileges of worship to experience a bit of the value of what we have. So that when we are coming back together, we will discover afresh the value of meeting together. Meeting together where the peace of Christ can rule our relationships, refining our relationships. And where the word of Christ begins to dominate our thinking so that there are heartfelt expressions of generous and, and, and loud musical praise to God. I really do look forward to the time when these empty chairs can be filled again. And until we meet again, make sure you practice the grace principles that we looked at last week. Learning to bear with one another, practicing kindness, humility, forgiveness, apologies in your own home. And then when the doors finally open here again, to not neglect to meet together to experience all that God has in mind for us as we do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do so value your word. It is the only thing that unites us, and we know that you have given us many 
precious promises that we lean on right now. You have established what is truth. And while our world has often debated that which your word has made clear, oh Lord, may we lean into your word as absolute truth. I pray for us as a church family and the church churches around the world as we gather in these uh, unique days that we would uh, value in, in fresh ways what we've got because for this season it was gone. And may you be at work in us faithfully accomplishing your will, your peace, and communicating exactly what you have for us as we face sometimes uncertain days. And we praise you with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.